Have you ever caught a whiff of a particular aroma that unexpectedly took you back to an earlier time in your life? Maybe a certain aroma will suddenly remind you of something or somewhere from your past, maybe your childhood. But even more poignantly, maybe a particular aroma reminds you not just of a, another time or another place, but reminds you of a particular person. Smells, aromas can be like that, can't they? And right now, I can imagine some of your, your, your memories are already spinning. And maybe you've caught the smell of a particular baked item, maybe baking bread, and, and you think, wow, that, that reminds me of my grandma. Or maybe you get in a new car with someone, maybe not your own, but you get into a new car and, and you say, oh, that reminds me of my uncle. He always liked to drive new cars. And it's that smell that reminds you of him. Or maybe it's the smell of a roasting turkey and you have these memories coming to your mind of family gatherings that a particular aroma reminds you of a particular person. You know, when we think on that common experience that we have, I wonder what our descendants will remember about us that way. Will our descendants, our kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, will those coming behind us one day smell a particular aroma and say, that reminds me of you? Who do you smell like? I'm sorry, that sounds rather personal, doesn't it? <laughs> Who do you smell like? Join me, please, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And I'm calling today's sermon for you note-takers simply, Who do you smell like? We're only a month into our study of 2 Corinthians. Hasn't it been a rich journey already? It has, hasn't it? Thank you, Pastor Mark, for leading us in these opening sermons. We look forward to the rest of our journey. Have you found 2 Corinthians chapter 2? Follow along as I read now verses 12 through 17. This is what the Holy Spirit writes through the Apostle Paul. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who, all, who in Christ always leads us, those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2 are kind of a transition, and I won't dwell long on them, but we're going to notice for a good while here that Paul's focusing on um, explaining and defending his ministry as an apostle of the new covenant that he had detractors, he had critics in Corinth who were saying basically he wasn't qualified to be a spokesman for Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul wasn't, I don't think, necessarily into self-defense for personal reasons, but he was defending the gospel of Jesus Christ that he was a spokesman for. And so from now until we get into chapter 7, we're going to see Paul focusing on this issue of he has the gospel and he is God's designated spokesman for the gospel. Isn't it fascinating when we read these two verses where Paul says he went to Troas for what reason? Why did he go to Troas? To preach the gospel of Christ. He was on mission, wasn't he? He went to Troas, and Pastor Mark shared a map with us the other day, and, and I'll pull it up here again. Uh, you can see Troas up there in the upper right-hand corner. It was a very strategic city. Paul often went to strategic cities to share the gospel and to plant churches. You can see uh, how it's near the entrance into the Black Sea in that whole area, the Dardanelles it's called. Um, by the way, for you history buffs, this isn't far from the ancient city of Troy. But there in Troas, Paul went there to preach the gospel, to see a church started. And even though we read that and he says, a door was open for me, the Spirit was preparing a way for him to preach the gospel and to plant a church. But he said, my spirit was not at rest. That catches us off guard. We would think, wow, Paul, if you had these open doors, opportunities to preach the gospel, why don't you just park there for a while? Why don't you just stay there for a while and enjoy this open door the Lord's given you? But he said, my spirit wasn't at rest. Why was that? He said, Titus hasn't shown up. And if you're wondering, well, why would that bother Paul? Well, Titus was one of Paul's key co-workers, and he had sent the trusted Titus down to Corinth, to whom the letters to Corinthians were written. He had sent his emissary, his co-worker, his protege, Titus, down there to find out how did the people in Corinth receive my severe letter that Paul, not first Corinthians, but another letter where Paul had to rebuke these people. And he hadn't heard back yet. How did they receive that? Did they repent of their bad attitudes? Did they change? Or did they just reject everything I wrote? Titus, go down and find out. Titus, go to Corinth, talk to the people, find out what's happening. And then meet me in Troas. Now it's hard for us to stand in the sandals of these first century Christians because we're so used to immediate communication. We pull out our phones, we find out what's going on with just about anybody, anywhere, anytime. <laughs> they had no cell phones, as you know. They had no email. He had no way of finding out what happened to Titus. Why isn't he here? We said Troas would be the meeting place, and he hasn't shown up. And so his heart's not at rest. His primary concern is, how did the people in Corinth receive my letter? He doesn't know. He still doesn't know, and it doesn't seem like there's any good way to find out. And so he moved on to Macedonia, crossed over into Europe to Macedonia. And in Macedonia, there are some well-known churches to us, the church at Thessalonica, Thessalonians, church at Berea that we read about in the book of Acts. So some of the New Testament churches were up in that area. So he moved on to there. And if you're curious, when we get to chapter 7, we'll find out he did meet up with Titus eventually. But yet, we're still kind of on the edge of our seat, like, what happened to Titus? More importantly, what happened in Corinth? And so Paul's now writing this letter to them. Um, 
even though his spirit wasn't at rest, the way I would like to think of it is this. If his heart had eyes, where were the eyes of Paul's heart fixed? Was he concerned about his current situation? Oh, yeah. But he had his eyes set higher and farther. And he realized who's on the throne, and he realized the mission he'd been given. And so we continue to read then, don't we? But thanks be to God. And so here Paul is, even though his spirit's not at rest, he's thanking God, who always leads us in triumphal procession. Paul's painting a picture here, a verbal picture of a parade. And if your mind automatically goes to something like the Macy's Thanksgiving parade, <laughs> this is a very different kind of parade. This wasn't, you know, balloons and throwing candy at the crowd. This was a, a military parade. And what they did back in Roman times is if a Roman general was victorious over the enemy, then he would take some of his prisoners of war and he'd bring them back to the capital city and he would parade them in front of the citizens. And it was like he was displaying his victory. You know, here's, here's the general on this white charger and maybe some of his officers around him. And then trailing behind would be these prisoners of war as a symbol of how well he had conquered the enemy. And Paul's painting a verbal picture of that kind of parade. Thanks be to God in Christ who always leads us in triumphal procession. The conquering general is depicted here as the great victor. And this aroma, this fragrance we read about here would be like incense that they would spread along the parade route. And to some people that smell meant victory. We're, we're on his side, the general's side. But for some of the prisoners of war, they knew that when they got to the arena, some of them would most likely be executed. Others sold into slavery. But if you'll use your sanctified imagination with me for a few minutes, imagine that you and I are spectators along that parade route. We're spectators along that parade route, and, and we've heard, we've heard that somewhere in this parade is none other than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, the great missionary Paul. And you heard he's going to be in the... And so here's King Jesus, the great victor, coming down the parade route. And, and you're watching and you're saying, I heard, I, heard, I heard Paul was in this parade. And you're looking all around Jesus to see if he might be on one of those horses near Jesus. And, and you don't see him. You don't, you don't see Paul riding on a horse near Jesus. And so you ask one of the other spectators. You say, well... I heard the Apostle Paul's in this parade, but I don't see him. Do you know where he is? And, and the guy beside you on the parade route goes, was that him back there? And you look at the captives. You look at the captives, and you realize, well, that, that is him. And you look at this man among the captives, and, and you realize he's bearing all kinds of scars from the repeated beatings he had undergone as a preacher of the gospel. And you notice that some of his joints seemed twisted from the repeated stonings he had somehow survived. And his face has more lines on it that you would assume from a man in his 50s. You think, that man has suffered. But then you notice something surprising. There's a smile on his face that he is a glad captive. He's a glad captive. 
Paul's been captured by the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ. Some of you have heard the story, read the story, know the story of that day that Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus. King Jesus, General Jesus, King Jesus arrested him that day. And by his sovereign grace, he gave Saul of Tarsus a new heart and a new name. You're going to be Paul the missionary. And from that point on, once Paul was commissioned by the church in Antioch to go as a missionary, he had lived for years with suffering for the gospel. Those scars he bore in his body were earned as he went through time after time. I'm in 2 Corinthians, are you? Let's just glance at chapter 11 for a minute. This is profound. When you think about Paul talking about this triumphal procession, when you think about what he had undergone as a servant of Christ, I'm just going to drop in mid-sentence of verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, where just he says, I underwent... More imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. And here's Paul's testimony in this very letter that his life, his ministry, his missionary life had been marked by suffering. And you know... If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're like me. You love getting letters from missionaries that we know, we love, we pray for, we support. And it's tempting. I know we have some missionaries here with us today. It's tempting when you're in that situation to tell stories of your successes. Write all these glorious stories of your successes. All these wonderful things that are happening on the mission field. And yet Paul's letters home weren't always filled with successes. Sometimes there were reports of beatings, of getting kicked out of town again, thrown in jail, shipwrecked, trying to get from one mission point to another. And you know, we read about Paul suffering that way. Well, the people in Corinth knew about that too. And some of the people in Corinth especially some visiting, I hate to call them preachers, but I don't know what else to call them. Some of these visiting preachers were trying to convince the people in Corinth, why would you listen to a loser like that? I mean, look, if God was blessing this man, he would be having a lot of successes on his resume. I mean, he would be impressive. He would have celebrity status. Paul the Apostle, you know, thunderous applause from the crowds. But that wasn't Paul's testimony. He said, my, my ministry's been marked by suffering. And some of these detractors in Corinth, some of these visiting preachers in Corinth are trying to steer the church away from not only Paul, but the gospel he preached. 
trying to convince them if, 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 you, if you want to really have a good life, you're going to want a gospel of success. You're going to want a gospel that will razzle and dazzle people. What's all this suffering talk? Why would you listen to Paul? Loser. One thing we're going to see in this letter is this depiction Paul gives. He's very honest. He's very open about being a suffering servant. But he's a suffering servant who exudes the aroma of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. You know what? Here in the 21st century, excuse my pastoral aside here, but here in the 21st century, we need to park here for a while. We need, we need to meditate on this. Because we live in a culture here in 21st century Western world we live in a celebrity culture. Well, we love celebrities. And that can infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ. So that even Christians look for Christian celebrities to follow. And if you follow the Christian news, you'll find every so often, rather regularly, recently, Christian celebrities have fallen. You know, those experiences, I don't wish that on anybody. But those should be lessons for us. We ought not to be into celebrity culture. The celebrity culture ought not to be in us. But that we want Christ as exalted. We want Him to be seen and, and not the spokesman. Over 400 years ago, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now there's an aspiration. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Just so people remember him. He's the one we want people to remember. The Corinthian church was into celebrity culture. We can follow in their fateful footsteps if we're not careful. Paul says, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Are you following along here in verse 14? The fragrance of the knowledge of him. Who's the him? Jesus Christ. And the aroma of Jesus Christ is the aroma of sacrifice. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we're spreading that fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Let me ask you a personal question. You don't need to answer it out loud, but I would like you to answer it in your heart. And that is this. What is your aim as a follower of Jesus Christ? What is your aim in life? Is it to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ everywhere you go? Paul said this is through us, through our words, through our lives, our passions, our priorities. Oh, we must speak the gospel. The gospel requires words. But those words we speak are enlivened, strengthened by the way we live. That the people around us at your school, your workplace, your neighborhood, your extended family Thanksgiving table, the people in your life, the people in my life, when they listen to the words I speak, my life will either detract from that or add to that. And it's my life the passions of my life, the priorities of my life, strengthening my verbal witness for Christ, 
So the people who see me, even non-believers who see me and know me, say, I might not believe what that man believes, but I believe he does. There's a passion to her life, a passion to his life about Jesus Christ. When I'm around him, when I'm around here, I, I smell Jesus. I smell Jesus. It's the aroma of Christ that we permeate everywhere we go. This aroma of Christ, Paul says, is to God. It's pleasing to Him. Whenever we live for God the Son, God the Father smells that priority in our lives and goes, that smells good to me. He wants His Son honored. In our words, He wants His Son honored in our lives. He wants His Son honored in our church. And when we are given to that, when we say, yes, that's my priority in life, that's my aim in life, no matter what my vocational calling is, no matter what my age, no matter what my ability or disability, my calling in life, my, my aim in life is to spread the fragrance of Christ everywhere I go. When we live that way, it smells good to God the Father. But that same aroma of Christ, interestingly, is polarizing to people. For some, the aroma of Christ smells like life to them. Some people smell the aroma of Christ. They hear the gospel. They hear the voice of Christ. And to them, it sounds like life. That Christ is their hope, their sure hope of being right with God. The smell of Christ to some people smells like eternal life. What's that old hymn? Daring, shame, and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Do you know the next line? Hallelujah! What a Savior! That we see Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. And for those of us who are under life, under life, that smell of the sacrifice of Christ means our salvation. It means peace with God. And so we cry out, Hallelujah. What a Savior. Gripped by grace. And yet to other people, that same aroma, that same aroma of Christ, among those who are perishing, how do they respond to that? It's the same aroma. But for some people, they're repulsed by that. The gospel necessarily talks about sin. It talks about people's sin. It talks about your sin, my sin, and our utter inability to fix the problem ourselves. Here I am, having offended God, estranged from God, and I, I can't fix that. I can't fix my own heart. I cannot fix God's offense toward me because of my sin. And you, you give that gospel message to some people and it's offensive. How dare you talk to me as if I'm some kind of sinner? Oh, I might not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as a lot of people I know. I'm a sincere person. I try to be a good person. Maybe I'm even a little bit religious. Don't go talking to me about being a sinner. I'll, I'll, I'll find a way to God. I'll make a way to God. 
And the gospel that we speak, the gospel that we live, the aroma of Christ we exude, offends them. How dare you? How dare you? To them, this aroma of Christ, Paul says in this passage, is from death to death. Please understand, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He already told us that. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 32, God says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Repent and live. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But it is clear in the Bible from cover to cover that the only way to be right with God is through Jesus Christ. That He alone can pay for our sins. It's on the cross that justice and mercy kiss. There's no other way. Some people hear that and it's offensive to them. Before I move on, friends, I mean, there's plenty of people in our culture who say, well, I might not be a Christian like you are, but I'm not against Christ. I'm just kind of neutral. There's no neutrality with Christ. When people are confronted with the Christ of the gospel, when people are confronted with the Christ of the Bible, there's no neutrality. That Jesus Christ is the watershed. Jesus Christ is polarizing in that sense. That you smell the aroma of Christ and it is either life or death. There's no third ground. So if you're looking for a neutral place to stand, my friend, there isn't one. One of the most clear, simple verses in the Bible. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Those are the only options. Friends, this is a sobering thing for us believers, us followers of Christ to consider. It is so tempting. It's always been tempting, but I think in our current culture it's probably even more prominent the temptation to play it safe. People saying, well, we're living in the cancel culture. Yeah, we are. You know, people are offended these days. They're offended by anything or everything. And it's so tempting as Christians to know that. Here I am living in the cancel culture. Here I am living in a culture where everyone's offended by anything that might in any way make them uncomfortable. So I better just play it safe. I better just play it safe. And I know ahead of time the gospel is kind of offensive to people. The gospel that I read in the Bible. So what, why, don't, why don't I just kind of tweak a little bit? I mean if I'm with people that like it. If I'm with people that like the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can sing loud. I can talk freely. But if I'm around those people at work, if I'm around those people on social media, if I'm around those people in my school that don't like Jesus Christ, I don't want them to unfriend me. I don't want them to cancel me. I don't want them to diss me in any way. So why don't I just kind of tone it down? Why don't I just kind of apply, imply, you know what, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, that's fine. As long as you're true to yourself, that's okay with me. 
why, why don't I just kind of communicate that? That what, whatever you're good with is good, good with me. And that way I won't offend anybody. That way I won't have anybody rejecting me, ostracizing me at school. I won't have people in the cafeteria mocking me. I won't have people at work avoiding me in the break room. Why don't, why don't I just kind of morph the message now and then, make it more palatable to the people? Paul says, no. There's one aroma, the aroma of Christ. That was true in his day, and that is true in our day. My Christian friends, do you treasure Christ? Do you find him to be precious? Is spreading the aroma of Christ more important to you, more valuable to you than your own reputation, than your own popularity, than your own safety? Would you say Jesus Christ is more valuable to me than anything this world has to offer? Jesus Christ is more valuable to me than everything this world has to offer. I want to live for him. Some of you Christian kids are going to school tomorrow. And I think about being a Christian kid and the temptation to want to be liked, the temptation to be, want to be popular at your school. What's it going to take to be popular at your school? Athleticism, academic success, being funny, could be anything. And it's so tempting to just kind of yield to that and say, well, I, I want to be popular. I want to be well accepted. I want my friends to think well of me. So even though I profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, why don't I just kind of tone that down? Why don't I just kind of keep that to myself? You know, religion's a private matter. No, it's not. But it's so tempting, isn't it? But to instead, Christian kids, when you go to school, to say, what a privilege I have. That I carry with me as a follower of Jesus Christ. I carry on me his aroma. That as I live as a Christian kid in my school, the, the priorities of my life, the passions of my life, what I care about, what I talk about, smells like Jesus. And even if it means some of my classmates reject me, even if they unfriend me. I want to bear the aroma of Christ because He's my passion. And it's not just the kids, is it? It's us adults too. We can live in such selfish fear that we want to be well-liked, well-known in our community, at our workplace, on social media, that we're not free in our souls to exude that aroma of Christ but to say no I'm willing to risk for the cause of Christ I'm willing to risk my own popularity I'm willing to risk my reputation and someday we might need to be saying here in our own country I'm willing to risk my safety my life for the cause of Christ he is more valuable to me, more precious to me.
than anything this world has to offer, than everything this world has to offer. And I want to challenge those of us that are older, parents, grandparents, are we modeling this for the coming generations? That the coming generations would say, my dad, my mom, my grandpa, my grandma lives for Jesus Christ. When I'm around my dad, when I'm around my mom, when I'm around my papa, my grandma, I smell Jesus. And you know what? We are. In and of ourselves, we are inadequate. Paul asks that question, doesn't he? In verse 16, at the end there, he says, who is sufficient for these things? In and of ourselves, we are inadequate. But you know what, my Christian friend? We are not in ourselves, are we? We are in Christ. And so we find our sufficiency for this, this sobering calling. We find our sufficiency in Christ. Paul would write to the Corinthians in chapter 3, he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you look at yourself and you say, I'm not adequate. Well, don't stop there. Look at Christ. To quote McShane, he's a preacher from Scotland in the 1800s, he said, one look at self, ten looks at Christ. And as a fellow Scot descendant, I went up McShane, and I want to say McCall. One look at self, a thousand looks at Christ. You look at Christ and you say, my sufficiency is in Him. And so when you think about those somewhat scary or at least tenuous relationships you have, is if I live openly for Jesus Christ, am I going to face difficulty, ostracism, mockery? I don't want that. I don't try to be offensive. But I want to have a consistent aroma about me that no matter who I'm with, no matter what I'm doing, I want, I want to smell like Jesus. I want to be so soaked in the gospel of Christ that His aroma exudes from me as His follower. The Apostle Paul ends this passage in verse 17 by saying, we're not like so many peddlers of God's Word. He's probably pointing the finger at these detractors in Corinth. He's probably pointing his finger at these preachers that have entered the church and are hurting it. There are some, and we need to be aware of this, friends, there are some so-called preachers that pretend like they're in it for Christ, they pretend like they're in it for the people, but they're really in it for themselves. They love money, and they use Christ. Instead of loving Christ and using money, they, they get it all backwards. Instead of seeing resources as a tool to promote Christ, they see Christ as a resource. They see Christ as a means to get the resource of money. And, and they're just, they're just so-called preachers, teachers, that are in it for their own gain. Paul says, we're not, we're not peddlers of God's word. We are not hucksters. We've been commissioned by God. 
God's called us to be the spokesman for His Son, Jesus Christ. And we want to be faithful to that. Commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Our commissioning comes from God. It is before God, in His presence. We live every day in the presence of God. Coram Deo, in the presence of God, every day. You think about your typical day. You are always living in the presence of God. You find your strength from God, and you be a spokesman for God. Paul told the Thessalonian believers this in his first letter. He says, on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Listen, my Christian friend, we're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. <laughs> Amen? His smile, his approval, his approval of our lives should be what really matters to us. And so we fix our hearts. We fix our hearts. On that day, on that one, and on those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Who do you smell like? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our sinful tendency at times promote ourselves more than we promote you, to defend ourselves rather than defending the gospel, wanting people to be impressed with us more than they're impressed with your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for his purifying work in our lives. And I ask, Lord, that you would come in my life and the life of my friends here in this church and that you would move among us, that you would continue to do your work of making us more like your son that as you fix our eyes on your Son, that your Spirit continues to transform us to be like him so that we increasingly smell like him. I pray for the Christian kids in our church who, uh, going through these years of growing up, that they might have fruitful years, fruitful years in their young years of living passionately for you. For those in their young adulthood, their middle years, Lord, too, that you would use these people in our church that are in those productive years, that they might live everyday life for the spread of the gospel wherever you take them vocationally. And Lord, for those of us in our older years, that you might preserve us, Lord, from the temptation to coast, but that we might live our older years fruitful like a tree planted in the courts of the yard. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to exude Christ, that when people even come and visit our assemblies, Lord, that they would say, Jesus is here. This place smells like Jesus. Come and do your work. Glorify yourself here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.